Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the history of an attraction called Spaceship Earth and sort of its backstory. Now, as you realize, we've talked about in the past that Spaceship Earth was this cool concept. It was this giant sphere, this thing they were going to put in the center of Epcot to be the focal point of Epcot. When you talk about the world showcase where you talk about humans and how they interact, and then you talk about the technology park that would have been Future World and Communicore. And these areas would have come together by Spaceship Earth, which would have told the story of humanity and how we came into being. So the Disney company contracted with a lot of different people to help present that story and bring it together in some way. And one of the people they brought in was Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury is an author who was famous for science fiction primarily and fantasy. But the thing about him that's really interesting is he worked in a variety of different areas. So he talked about fantasy, about science fiction, horror, mystery, and sort of realistic fiction. So he really understood how humans fit into the overall nature of society. And so he was a great person to ask to help write a script for what Spaceship Earth would be. So after meeting with Disney, he actually sat down and put, well, I guess you could say pen to paper, but it's more like typewriter keys to paper. He wrote something called Man and His Spaceship Earth, which would be the theme show for Epcot Center and Future World. He wrote this in July of 1977. So just to give you a little perspective on it, this was only six years after the Magic Kingdom opened. And it would be another five years before Epcot opened. So he really had this concept that he was throwing together that was kind of intriguing and really kind of brought all this stuff together. So this was the basis for his story. And he had some sketches and some 3D models that were also created with Wet Enterprises that should be used in conjunction with this that kind of told the story in a way. Remember that Disney was always very good at imaginative storytelling and could put together these different models, dioramas, sketches and so forth that really told the story without needing a script, but what he wanted to do was provide some context to what that script would be so that you really understood the story. So it became a much more visceral, emotional story in a way. So he includes some quotes from Archibald MacLeish, to see the earth as it truly is, small and blue and beautiful, in that eternal silence where it floats, is to see ourselves as riders on the earth together, brothers on that bright loveliness in the eternal cold, brothers who know now that they are truly brothers. And one from astronaut William Anders, the earth looked so tiny in the heavens that there were times during the Apollo 8 mission that I had trouble finding it. If you can imagine yourself in a darkened room with only one clearly visible object, a small blue-green sphere about the size of a Christmas tree ornament, then you begin to grasp what the earth looks like from space. I think that all of us subconsciously think that earth is flat or at least almost infinite. Let me assure you that rather than a massive giant, it should be thought of as a fragile Christmas tree ball 
which we should handle with considerable care. So in his prologue, Bradbury writes, the man in his spaceship Earth is an introduction to the Epcot Center future world. It's an optimistic statement. It presupposes that man's continuing dynamic is survival, recognizes the enormous challenges to this dynamic, and concludes strongly that creative men and women of the world can create a viable and dynamic instruction book for spaceship Earth. Our story in the Epcot Center future world is also the story of the free enterprise system, for it is the continuing freedom to create new and better tools for survival that have been the real dynamic of man's voyage aboard Spaceship Earth. What we need, our show makes clear, is access to accurate and relevant information. What we need is an opportunity to learn the alternatives, choices, and options available. What we need is broad public understanding of the consequences of our decisions. What we need is the confidence born of greater participation, greater understanding, greater knowledge. What we need in the end is to take the correct course of action. In the chapters of our Man and His Spaceship Earth story, we will seek the guest's understanding of the relationship between communications and survival. Key points in our story include, one, access to accurate and relevant information by people of many times and cultures has made survival possible. Our first forum, the cave of Stone Age Man. Two, each of the examples we illustrate and dramatize was the key tool by which information was managed and communicated in a specific historical time and place. Three, the Epcot Center future world will be depicted as today's forum. Here the tools for survival are in continual, hands-on use for our tools to become the electronic world of information and communications. These tools help us to better understand and manage our instruction book for Spaceship Earth with the accurate and relevant information about energy, health, the sea, the land, outer space, communication, and transportation. And today, electronically, we can not only gather around a single forum, the single campfire in the cave, while sitting in our own home and offices and schools, we can place our own minds inside the cave, beside the fire. In our show, we will move through history using metaphors, relating the story of communications and the role it has played in the survival of the human race. Historically, with accurate and relevant information, man has been able to make the right decisions that were instrumental in his development into a superior being. The wrong information, the wrong decision in those primitive days might have left us in the tall grass or in the trees or perhaps still in the caves. As civilization expanded and centers of culture became more distant, new methods of communication became necessary. Man and his spaceship Earth is divided into three phases of this development, essentially corresponding to the major epochs or historical watersheds in man's ability to communicate. The first period represents the recording of information. For the first time, man records his experiences, communicating not only to his contemporaries, but to the whole parade of civilization that follows down the ages of time. The second period marks the dawn and flourishing of disseminating man's recorded information, so that man's knowledge and access to information spreads with the speed and the limitations of his means of transportation. The third great period is the area of processing of information. Now man not only records and transports information through, through computing tools, he has the ability to sort out vast amounts of information, manage these mountains of knowledge, and affect change by taking direct aim at specific parts of his problem. To illustrate each, such epoch will stage and dramatize a series of vignettes. These forums will sometimes be viewed as sequential montages and other times as small plays depicting the essence of the idea. For these dramatizations, we pause for a moment in our journey from the dawn of time to the sunrise of our future world. Our story, our search for the accurate information to fill our instruction book for Spaceship Earth begins in the control center of our Epcot Center future world. The audience will, of course, load in the present. They will then descend into the past. <clears throat> they will move along into prehistoric, ancient, medieval, and then modern times. And in the finale, 
they will be summoned, called, raised up, beyond into the future. Present into past, past into present, into future is our sequence then. Where did we come from? Some of this we know. Where are we going? Some of this we dream. How do we get there? Let me chart the ways. The future has many arts, many sciences, many paths, many doors. So says the voice speaking from the past, living in the present, calling from the future. So act one, descent into the past. As the audience enters the dome theater, vague faces float in and out of the mists of vapors, coming clear and then dissolving into others. We hear the voices of Kennedy dedicating us to space travel. Martin Luther King speaking of his dream, Truman giving them hell, Roosevelt speaking of the day that will live in infamy. Mingled with other voices, traveling us slowly back in time, we hear Churchill speaking of blood, sweat, and tears, Hitler shouting to his mobs, Mahatma Gandhi, Charles Lindbergh, Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt. Then shifting from real voices, swiftly we move back to hear the simulated voices of Queen Victoria, Lincoln, Napoleon being crowned emperor, Columbus telling his sailors to sail on, the crowds crying, Hail Caesar. More swiftly and more swiftly, names, sounds, bells, impulses, and lights, and suns and moons glide over, stars wheel. The voices and sounds are multitudinous and made of all the reverberations and thunders of the past. Gradually, all the voices of the time and history blend into a single voice, like a wave on the shore. In the voice of universal man asking us to speculate on our past. What are we? Where did we come from? And where go? What is our past that lies beneath us like the dust? Let us sink into the past, that dust defined ourselves. Let us bury ourselves in the five billion years and then burst forth with wings to plan tomorrow's new. Now, suns reverse, all moons rephase. As they listen to Universal Man speak, the audience becomes involved in a physical experience that seems to sink them into layers of the past. The cities begin to unbuild themselves and we see in this sculpted piece of antiquity the historical remnants of man through the ages. We hear a voice that says, we are all of mankind that ever existed, all of time that ever was, all of the dreams and myths that fill the heavens, all the dust from which we were formed. The Rhodes Colossus dismantles itself. The Roman Forum with its pillars falls stone by stone. We see the Sphinx return to the dust from which it came. We glide through the layers of Angkor Vat as the Incan sculptures and Mayan rocks chiseled with blunt suns uncarve themselves until at last the ancient caves surround us. The first leg of our journey terminates at the beginning of time. We sit in blackness. As we move into act two, a voice says, where are we now? In the time before all time, in the night that is endless night, in the unlit waiting for dawn, where vast things stir and breathe. Out of the blackness comes an explosion of color, light, and sound. The great Andromeda Nebula spirals by, tossing out new suns and planets. The Horsehead Nebula spins up. The Orion Nebula goes over and around in a heartbeat of universal push and shove. And as we move, we see the fireball comet nearest us cool down into a sphere and, and form before our eyes. Its fires fill our vision. It is Earth. The seas pull back and the walls of Earth rear up. Shadows form and move along the walls. And suddenly, the dinosaurs. We now move in a parade of beasts on the left and right, led by a flight of pterodactyls overhead. With these other flying reptiles surge toward the blind future. Everywhere, the beasts who shared the Earth long before man move on the long march into time. The dinosaurs fall, great tonnages of nightmare flesh knock together, concussions of vapor, water, fire, from which rise shadows, shape, and simian evolutions. Half-dreamed on preconcepts of the ape and man. No sooner seen, they run into the grass, in trees, and caves. 
A flash of lightning, a mighty roll of thunder, a great volcanic eruption, and the fiery light we see revealed a half-naked ape-man approaching the trees set afire by flowing lava. Cautiously, he touches the burning branch, holds it up high with awe and surprise, carries it off into the black darkness of night. Distant voices, grunts and cries and struggle, herald the presence of Cro-Magnon Man. And now the roar, the anguished trumpet of a huge, dread, hairy mammoth beast. We are in the midst of a fierce encounter. From all sides, ancient man attacks the beast with fiery torch. The voiceover says, now we, ape creatures becoming man, learn new ways to fight the ancient beast. And we met the challenge to survive. We picked its bones and cooked its meat to make us strong and changed the midnight with fire to noon and lived another day. We enter a long, dimly lit cavern. Shadows of cave-dwelling people are all around. Women and children gnawing on the bones of the great beast, brave hunters still brandishing their spears, reliving the excitement of the great hunt. And in the flickering light of the warming fire, we see a man drawing on the walls of the cave, drawing the very story of the battle to survive the mammoth beast. The voice says, with soot on stone, we left the blueprint of how we killed the dragon beast. From all the caves, our brothers came and gathered round. A single campfire blazed and learned, learned well from what had been recorded there, a plan to face tomorrow's noon. What they left behind, what we have seen drawn and recorded on the cave walls, of course, are the minutes of the original meeting in Time's first room. Ancient man met ancient brother and exchanged ideas and information and triumphs and tales of how to meet the challenge of their time and survive. And then on to the next act. Now our time machine moves on from the cave of the Stone Age man, entering the labyrinth of man-made walls of historical data, a passage through time illustrating the development of man's ability to record information as we pass along this wall. The recordings become hieroglyphs and pictures in the land of the Egyptian pharaohs. Voice says, we planted crops, took root, worshiped gods who brought the wind and the rain and the sun. We built new walls and chiseled marks on the stone to live through the endless time, recorded now, old tales once by word of mouth alone. On all sides, sails raise up, wooden oars dry deeply into the blue waters. Our time machine becomes a Phoenician galley bound for the ancient Greece. And then we put our walls on ships, sailed out across the seas to share what we had learned, how to plant, to grow and build, to trade our goods and exchange our goods and ideas with far and distant lands. On a Grecian beach, Phoenician merchants display their coveted wares, a slab of clay inscribed with curious wedge-shaped symbols is examined, questioned, discussed, deliberated, and debated by Greek and Phoenician traders. Our traders are disseminating not only their goods, but also their knowledge of the world they live in. Soldiers clash as we see the giant swords and hear the clang of spears in medieval battle. At last, the fighting fades and a lone campfire flares in a royal tent. The knights and nobles confront their tyrant king. A voice says, a truce. And to this war at last an end, and from the king no spoken pledge, but a recorded deed. Now our dreams, once locked in chiseled walls, took wing, sent forth on parchment sheet. A new day dawns, and in the soft morning glow we see that the data wall has become a giant wall of printing symbols. Typefaces, sheets of printed parchment, scrolls, bound volumes of eliminated manuscripts. The voice says, and now for all, the printed word. With ink and press we made new walls. Bound volumes of Ecclesiastics and Plato of Galileo and Homer, scholar, scientist, philosopher, we caught your soul in types and printed you forth in mobs. By the hundreds, by the thousands, we lit the walls with printed words, filled them with ideas that taught, informed, inspired, some old, some new, ideas to share and spread to far and distant shores. 
and we move to the Industrial Revolution. The data wall becomes a cyclorama of symbols representing the primitive machinery in the Industrial Revolution. Steam-powered overland conveyances pace our journey. The voice says, we built new towns. We made machines and powered them with steam around the world. Small campfires grew, became a massive blaze. Each campfire gathered millions in, many faces, many colors, many tongues and cultures joined. And then we asked ourselves, how in the world so vast is this? How we keep the campfires lit? How stay in touch to make so many men and women talk and think and move toward common dreams? Now the wall becomes an abstract shape of crisscrossed woven strands of wire, symbolically linking continents, countries, communities in remote and distant places. The staccato Morse code is heard. Then the sound of voices in many languages. Then the static broken tone of radio transmission of familiar events and voices, entertainment events of the 30s and 40s, Fred Allen, Jack Benny, the Hindenburg disaster, Roosevelt's fireside chats, and so on. The voice says, we invented the telegraph, the telephone, the wireless, the radio, the crisscrossed the world with the wire first, then filled the air with sound. In remote and distant lands, we linked each campfire with rapid talks and chats, with information, with entertainment. How keep in touch? With the rocket fire and satellite. We sent walls forth in all directions, north, south, east, west. With instant sound and sight, we touched each nation of the world, each city, each home, each man, woman, child. We brought to every cave the knowledge of who we are, of what we are, and what in the world was going on now. And then we move into a computer sequence. As the voice speaks, we pass beneath the communication satellites, silently orbiting in space. Beyond, we see the towering outline of a modern city. As we approach, the sounds and sights of the city build to a cacophonous crescendo. From all the sides, we are bombarded with information and misinformation. We are battered with a cyclone of printed matter, books, magazines, newspapers, garish neon lights offended the senses. We are drowned in a hurricane of TV images. Then a voice says, too much, too many facts. How can we sort them out? Another voice says, how can we sort our facts with computer walls, walls that accumulate, organize, store, interpret, retrieve, transmit information with incredible volume and speed. We approach an electronic wall of countless blinking lights. We enter the computer and are submerged in the psychedelic experience created by the colored lights swirling in wild abstract patterns. The air is filled with the sound of a million facts. Gradually, the sounds and visuals subside and blend into an intelligible sound of the space crew preparing for space launch. This is mission control. You have a clear to launch. Roger, mission control. Proceed with the countdown to T minus three minutes. This is launch control at T minus three minutes and counting. Then the voice comes back on and says, we have gone deep down in time and we see our spaceship Earth born in universal midnight with new knowledge, new technology, new communications. We built new walls, walls that inform, changed lives, changed worlds. Now let us point up to the wall of space. Come up to the light, to the stars, to the worlds beyond. T minus one minute. On all sides, the rockets flame. Two, six, eight, 12, 20 rockets surround us in fire. Three, two, one, blast off. With a shudder, a tremble, a roar of our time machine blasts off as if it were a spaceship for distant space. We blast straight up, rising into the fire, into the sky, pulled, pushed, bombarded. The voice says, remember the seven days of creation. Recall the eighth long day of man on earth. Now see and live forever's day. Now the ninth long day of man in space, born to far worlds. As Marco Polo and Columbus and Lewis and Clark before us, we are the new pioneers, searching uncharted seas by the light of uncounted stars. The universe is ours to discover and explore. But wait, hold. 
The flight abruptly slows, freezes, the journey's thunder roar ceases. The fire is cut off, we float in serenity in the sky around Earth and see it as a lonely, solitary island in space. The voice says, now turn and see our spaceship Earth, suspended there, a fragile, silent beauty, drifting island in the midnight sky. Look back to really see and know and learn and ask ourselves, where are we now? Where do we go from here and how? Where is the book that taught us how to fly this great spaceship Earth? Lost? Forgotten? Misplaced in old forums? Perhaps. Then let us write the book anew. Come back to spaceship Earth. Let us seek the right. Let us dream and plan and understand. Let us aim anew toward the future. Bring grand harvests and ideas. Bring new concepts and from many land and people to share the information and understanding and dreams for tomorrow and beyond. Gather round. Gather round the next great campfire. Let us seek and know and understand and dream a new book, a new instruction book to fly the great spaceship Earth through the uncharted seas of the future world. Now the engines of our rocket ship reverse. We begin our descent back to spaceship Earth. As we descend, the Earth grows larger and closer. We hear the voices of universal man offering our promises and challenges. The voice says, what if, what if, what if each one of you could leave here this day, this hour, this minute, and truly become yourself? What if all the dreams you ever dreamed, all the things you ever wished to be, all the ideas you ever had, poured from your head, rushed from your fingertips to recreate your life and change the world? Go forth from here, this way and that, that way and this. I point you here, but if you wish, go there. Lock into dream that is your own. Find what truth is in your blood and beat a path from here to there. The world lies waiting. The buried truths wait to be found. You find them with your mind. You shape them with your hands. You become the future that must know and love and change itself. Then write it in the new instruction book. Carve it into the new walls and send it forth into the future world. Now Spaceship Earth is coming close. We enter and pull and shove and begin our orbit, preparing to land back at our destination. The future world, the voice of the universal man calls to the audience to come to the rest of the way into the light, into the universe, into the future. The voice says, become, know, understand. Your life is yours to own and be. The world is yours to shape and change. The stars are yours as just reward. Let us return to Spaceship Earth. Let us revise the book, the walls. Let us gather, record, disseminate, process new concepts from many lands and people. Let us share their information about energy, their understanding of the land, their hopes for the seas, their dreams for tomorrow and beyond. Three things then, you, the vast and the waiting world, and at last the universe. Now, fling open the doors, exit your time machine, enter the future world. And as the voice of the universal man speaks, fire and flame surround us. We are wrenched by the sensation of re-entry and landing, and instantly the exit doors fly open on all sides and we are beckoned into the future world. This way to energy, this way to the seas, this way to the communicore, etc. So that the audience in the finale goes up to be let forth and then begin their own personal search through the attractions, the multifold ideas and displays waiting for them just beyond Epcot's future world. And my reaction to all of this is, dang, it's really deep and philosophical. He wrote it in a, in a style that really told a story about how we think about mankind and how we should think about our own future and our own past. And his voiceover narrations were almost poetic in the way they were written. If you really listen, it's not quite haiku, it's not quite poem, but there's definitely sort of a scheme to it. There's a, there's a rhyme scheme that works so that it actually kind of flows in a way and tells the story. 
I think it's very clever and creative. And if you really listen to the details in here, most of the things that he talks about showed up in the final edition of Spaceship Earth. They were a little different in the way that they were put together and laid out in the, in the attraction, but essentially the concept was there. So this was the nucleus of the idea. This is what generated the whole concept of Spaceship Earth. And it actually makes me happy to read this. It's sort of that, you know, hope for mankind, the future is bright, we have, we can create our own future. And it goes along with the very upbeat notion of Epcot and that whole idea of Epcot being something for future generations. It's all about us dreaming, living, understanding our world and, and the future. And really, as I think about it, that's become the focus of the things that I say in my podcast. Hey, we should go out there and, and do good things. And we should be able to live a happy life and enjoy ourselves and get out there and do some things and live harmoniously and disseminate good information. All of these things are still truths. So there you go. That's the story of Epcot and the uh, Spaceship Earth attraction. And I wanted to share with you what Ray Bradbury had in mind for Spaceship Earth because I thought it was really, really cool. And much of it came to fruition. And it also harkens back to the original idea for Epcot. You know, the, the concept that was thought of that became Epcot. And then they actually used the tagline in Horizons that was built later. If we can dream it, we can do it because this is really what it's all about. It's that nugget of information in your mind that you need to bring out. If you can dream it, you can certainly do it. And that's really what Ray Bradbury was putting in here. Kind of that historical thing about Epcot and what made Spaceship Earth really fascinating. Remember, this was written in 1977, more than 40 years ago. It's just an amazing concept when you think about it. All the things that he was putting in there, thinking about the historical nature of man and information and how we disseminate it. So that was the story. And I just, and I really, really wanted to share it with you. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to take a couple of minutes and talk about a topic that's come up in the news recently again and seems to come up fairly frequently. It's about banning books and burning books. And I found an article at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Libraries about book burning from 213 BC up to a 2011 in the Common Era. They say a library's mission is to facilitate the spread of information. There's no greater action contrary to this goal than book burning. Since ancient times, people from virtually all religions and societies have burned books as a form of censorship, protest, or hate-mongering. It's no accident that these violent acts have often been committed in parallel with gruesome executions of heretics, scholars, and enemies of the state. Each of the titles listed below at some point in time have been burned. Consider them a warning, for there will surely be future fights against the sharing of ideas. The control of fire by early humans for warmth, cooking, played a critical role in our evolution. All early cultures recognized fire as one of the primal elements of nature. From prayer candles to the Olympic torch to memorial flames, fire carries with it a profound meaning to this day. Yet despite its practical applications and life-giving properties, a multitude of disasters throughout history from the Great Fire of Rome to the bombings in World War II have been caused by the use of fire. For example, in 1963, four African-American girls died when their church was burned in Birmingham. And several of the worst forest fires in recent history, causing considerable damage to the environment and property, as well as the loss of lives, were caused by arson. 
The deliberate destruction of culturally symbolic objects through fire, such as the burning of draft cards or a country's flag, carries special significance. The burning of books represents a wanton desecration of knowledge and constitutes the worst form of censorship. Another historic use of fire as a political instrument is the act of self-immolation. On June 11, 1963, Thich Quang Dirk, and I'm sorry if I'm saying his name wrong, a Buddhist monk, set himself on fire in protest. The image of his suicide garnered worldwide attention and triggered a crisis in Vietnam. On January 4, 2011, Mohamed Bauzi, a Tunisian street vendor, distraught over harassment by government officials, burned himself alive. This act is widely regarded as an impetus for the subsequent Tunisian revolution and the ensuing Arab Spring movement in general. So who burns books? There's a rich pathology of motivations and what drives groups and individuals to burn books. These culprits may be loosely divided into the following categories. First one is vandals. Some book burnings are simply malicious acts of arson. Examples of this include a pillaging of a medieval monastery by the Vikings or vindictive French revolutionaries setting fires to opulent private libraries. The United States Library of Congress was also burned to the ground by the British during the uh, War of 1812. Second category is censors and bigots. As long as there have been materials deemed lewd or blasphemous, there have been attempts to ban them. Those burning books as an act of censorship on ideological grounds often display religious intolerance such as that exhibited during the Spanish Inquisition or the reign of the Taliban. And then, of course, there are anti-intellectuals. Tyrants throughout history, from Imperial China to Stalin to the Khmer Rouge to Castro, have attempted to preemptively quell sedition by eliminating subversive texts from the population. Such books have even proved fatal to their authors. The nationalism behind the Nazi book burnings is the most famous example of this. But the thing is, you can't destroy an idea. Have you heard of the Salman Rushdie? How about Hanif Qureshi? Both are acclaimed British authors. However, Rushdie is much more of a household name thanks to the death sentence he received. In modern times, and now thanks all the more so to democratic spread of online communities and digital forms of information, efforts to burn books, aside from garnering attention for the censors, also generates free publicity for the forbidden fruits being challenged. This often has a boomerang effect on any attempts to quell their influence. The backfiring of efforts to suppress information even has a name, the Streisand Effect, named after Barbara Streisand, who attempted in vain to censor a photograph of her beachfront mansion. Originally taken for a relatively unknown government to study on coastal erosion, the image became widely popular after Streisand's unsuccessful lawsuit against the photographer. In rock and roll, musical recordings of, of controversial artists have also been burned in recent history. In 1966, the Beatles, having landed themselves in hot water over John Lennon's infamous We're More Popular Than Jesus remark, had their records burned by several groups in admonishment. In 1982, a youth minister in North Carolina led a group of burning albums and cassettes of various popular artists in an attempt to destroy the purported backward messages in, quote, Satan's records. In 2003, the Dixie Chicks had their albums burned by those offended by a member's statement that were ashamed of the President of the United States is from Texas. The article goes on to present several quotes from different people about their feelings on books. And it's from basically both sides, the people that are trying to represent the books and protect them, and the people that are trying to destroy them and make a point. So I'll put a link to the article on my show notes page so you can find this article and read it and read all the quotes. I'm not going to read them all for you here. So then the article continues on. In the United States, there is virtually no such thing, at least in terms of prior restraint, the government forbidding information from being published. Aside from a few very specific titles, such as a book advising people not to pay taxes, exposés by former CIA and military intelligence employees, and information about software cracks, 
publications in this country are not banned. Libraries do, however, routinely faced objections to controversial materials that have been selected for their collections. This sometimes results in items being restricted, censored, or withdrawn from library shelves. One of the most challenged books of the past decade is And Tango Makes Three, a children's book about two real male penguins that raised a penguin chick. How much human knowledge has been purged from our collective memory due to such deliberate destruction? How much ground and scientific and cultural advancement has been lost by the absence of the, this information? The invention and widespread use of the printing press in the 1400s revolutionized the mass production of books and forever changed the democratization of knowledge throughout society. Prior to this time, books were transcribed by hand and usually only a precious few copies were made of each title. This made book burning, which could eradicate all versions of a work, an exceedingly efficient form of post-publication censorship. The Great Library of Alexandria, the largest collection of classical texts to have ever existed, was destroyed possibly due to a fire set by the Roman legionnaires. More recently in Iraq, the National Library and Archive was looted and burned during the 2003 invasion, and the Egyptian Scientific Institute was burned by protesters in 2011. As recent examples demonstrate, there are still widespread efforts to censor materials and incidents of book burning continue to make headlines. For example, in December of 2011, Taliban militants confiscated and burned cell phones and computers to prevent the spread of obscenity. The printed word as the predominant medium for information since the time of the cuneiform tablets and ancient calligraphy is facing challenges as well. The propagation of information over distributed networks has already heralded many wonderful advances for the development of ideas. Yet digital forms of information be just as vulnerable to tampering, especially if access is monopolized via centralized authority. Some, some pundits even warn of a digital dark ages where knowledge is lost by technological obsolescence and further restricted by oligarchies with newfound control over electric forms of information. Regardless of what formats will be used in the future, libraries will remain committed to facilitating access to information. So I found that really compelling and interesting and I just wanted to share it with you. I would suggest, if you hear about a book being banned, go find out for yourself what that book is all about. Go read it. And larger than that, if something interests you, read it. There's no reason not to. With the spread of information, with libraries, with digital content, with the internet, you should be able to find almost any book between your local library and online editions that are available. There are so, there's such a wealth of information. Don't be afraid to read, to enlighten yourself, to learn more. Why is, and then ask yourself the question, why does somebody want to ban this book? What is it about it that someone's so afraid of that they feel the need to challenge it in that way? Anyway, that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, 
one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 